That's the beauty and the greatness and the thrill of God's love. That no matter what you've done, He loves you. For God so loved the world, the black world, the white world, the yellow world, the red world, the rich world, the poor world, the uneducated world, the educated world. And He loves us all the same. God loves you. Morning. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the lead pastors here. And uh, we're going to continue uh, week three in a series that we've been doing called Come and See, which is in uh, John 1, second half of that chapter. Uh, I got back Friday from a little cross-country trip. Uh, I had an opportunity to buy a used car for my sister in Virginia, but I had to get it here, so I flew to Virginia and drove it back. Uh, but when I was thinking about driving it back, I thought, man, I've met a lot of people over the course of the last three years because of COVID and isolation, you know, we, we use a lot of tools. You had Zoom and you had other ways to like connect with people. So I've met a bunch of people that um, I've built relationships with and I've never actually met them in person. And so I managed to begin like kind of connecting with some people and telling them I was traveling. And I, I went from uh, Fairfax, Virginia to Morgantown, West Virginia to Letchfield, Kentucky to Fort Wayne, Indiana to Chicago, Illinois to Griswold, Iowa to Dallas, Texas out to Saginaw, Texas, all the way to Prescott, Arizona, and back here without staying in a hotel. Or sleeping in my car, <laughs> thankfully. Uh, and so about uh, two months ago, um, I, some of the people that I've met over the last few years that are in ministry, I just had this recognition and this conviction that uh, there were some, some folks that I knew that weren't really being mentored or poured into or discipled in their different ministries and churches. And so I invited them into a group, an online group from all over uh, the US to begin to walk through some discipleship. And so we met and we began to, to talk and pray for each other and I, I began to give them some things to begin to read and work through. And on my trip, I had an opportunity to meet with all but one of those people in person. And so I got to sit across from these different men who are in ministry in, in various stages of their life and various stages of ministry and just, for the most part, just listen. Just, just sit and listen. And um, let me, I haven't, I, I was talking about this earlier, I haven't fully processed this trip. I'm a, I'm a slow processor. Like I like to talk about things and to chew on them and I normally have to say them back out loud to kind of process through, which really drives people in the office nuts. Because like they, you know, they sit through most sermons about six times before ever makes it up here. <laughs> you know, because I'm, I'm processing what I'm reading and uh, I, haven't, I haven't finished processing, but I will tell you a couple things that are very true that, I, that I've learned after 3,900 miles. Uh, in the car by myself. Number one, uh, the gospel is alive and well in places all around the United States. There are people that love the Lord. They've been redeemed. They've been saved. They're in love with Jesus and they are on mission for the kingdom. They've never been to Bakersfield. They've never met you or me. Well, now they've met me. Uh, and they love the Lord. The kingdom is being advanced all over the country, all over the world, places you've never been, people you've never seen. Love the Lord. And there's unity in that. That's number one. Number two, there are a lot of places worse than Bakersfield. <laughs> you know, a lot of this is about your outlook. Uh, if you're looking for problems, you'll find them. If you're looking for things to celebrate, you'll find them. Uh, Bakersfield is a very encouraging place after you've been to a lot of places in the Midwest. <clears throat> Just gonna let you know. 
Uh, I drove through a lot of bad weather. Uh, you get here and today it's just bright and sunny and lovely. Um, but in a number of areas that I went to, you know, I had people kind of, I think everyone does this a little bit. They try to kind of, kind of convince people that you should go live where they live. You know, that makes everyone feel about, better about where they live. And, uh, you know, it was fun to talk about that and just say, hey, I live in Bakersfield because God called me to Bakersfield. To live anywhere else uh, is a pretty dangerous thing. Have you ever read the story of Jonah? <laughs> Don't do that. Go where God leads you. Stay there, plant and further the kingdom. So had a great trip, uh, came back, uh, really rested. I had one really bad story where uh, the, one of the bad things about traveling by yourself is you don't have to ask for any advice because you're traveling by yourself. So if you're like, hey, Daniel, is this a good idea? Yes, it is, and you just go do it. Uh, <laughs> I can get you into some interesting things. So I decided I want to get back a day early because I wanted to go to the picnic yesterday. So I was supposed to stop in Albuquerque, New Mexico and spend the night. And I just decided, well, I don't know anyone in Albuquerque, so I'm just going to skip it. I'm going to give it 2 a.m. in Dallas, and I'm drive all the way through to Prescott, Arizona, 17 hours, uh, four hours of high wind advisories, two hours of snow, but I made it. And I got there, and I'm sitting with, uh, on, on uh, Mark Abernathy's couch, Mark and uh, Jessica and their family used to come to our church before they moved to Arizona. And I'm sitting on his couch, and uh, I'm like, oh, I'm pretty exhausted. And finally, I, was like, I know it's pretty early, but I was like, I, I think I need to go to sleep. And they're like, you, you need to go to sleep. And I got up the next day, and we were at breakfast. And he goes, hey, do you know what happened last night? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you were talking to us, and you're sitting on our couch, sitting straight up in the air, and you literally fell asleep sitting straight up in the air. For like 30 seconds, we just all waited, and no one said anything. And then you woke back up, and you said, I think I need to go to sleep. And all of us were like, yeah, man, like, this is bad. And I was like, no, I don't remember any of that. So anyways, it was a great trip. I got to connect with some really uh, fun people. I got to meet people for the first time. I got to um, meet with three different sets of folks that used to live in Bakersfield, now live in different parts of the country, two of which came uh, to our uh, church before they moved to different states. That was a lot of fun. Uh, we are going to finish today uh, John chapter 1. We're going to finish this series and this chapter. And this is the third week where we've been going through Jesus calling his disciples. And so uh, one of the things, the patterns that has now emerged, and you're going to see it today in uh, the last part of John chapter 1, is that when people experience Jesus... When they hear about Jesus and they experience Jesus, the natural outcome, the natural next step is to talk about that, to tell people about that. And you're going to see that actually to not do that is its own little problem. It's almost unnatural not to talk about hearing and seeing about Jesus. And so we're going to jump into that. Um, if I take you back two weeks to the beginning of the series, there was this guy named John the Baptizer, not the John that the book is written about, but John the Baptizer, who's Jesus' cousin. Uh, and if you recall, he's uh, started kind of this ministry of calling the kingdom of Israel into repentance. That, and then he's saying, hey, the kingdom of God is coming. You need to repent. You need to, and so he's baptizing people, which was super awkward back then because they didn't do that unless you were being converted from outside Judaism into Judaism. But he was baptizing people that were already in Judaism. And so there's a lot of questions that come from this. But he's, he's got a following. And, and let's be honest, he's not a particularly charismatic or attractive guy. He's like a really rough around the edges guy who doesn't shave and doesn't get haircuts. Not cool haircuts like this, at least. And... He's out in the wilderness, he eats locusts and honey. He's just a weird guy. But he's become really popular. There's this revival that actually has begun to spread everywhere that he goes and preaches this message of repentance. And now he's got a big following. And so you think, like, he's finally made it. He's got his platform. And then we see that 
Actually, what happens is he hears from God that God's gonna actually show him who the Messiah is and does during a baptism, and it's his own cousin who he's grown up with and had no idea about. And so God reveals to him that Jesus is the Savior, the Lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. And so what do you do when you find out that this is the Messiah? You tell people. And so he tells people, and he actually tells his own disciples who are his most trustworthy, like closest people to him, and they leave him to follow Jesus. And we, we covered that two weeks ago. And then once that occurs, what we see is this spread now of Jesus beginning to recruit disciples and they begin to tell other people that they're close to about Jesus. And so uh, Jesus um, the, the, has the first couple disciples in Andrew and John and then Andrew goes and begins to tell people and then Jesus, uh, John sees and believes and he tells Peter, who was named Simon. Uh, Jesus renames him Peter or Cephas, which means rock. And today we're gonna see the story of Philip. Uh, Jesus is going to invite Philip to come and follow him, become a disciple, and then he's going to do what's natural. He's going to begin to share that. Join with me in John chapter 1, verse 43. It says this. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Uh, we believe that Philip probably knew Andrew and Peter. That's why they mentioned that they're from the same city. They actually may have been in the same occupation. They may have all been fishermen. We don't, we don't know, but it does seem like they know each other. Here's what I want you to understand. We're going to talk about a lot of this at the end of the message today as well. You have a circle of influence in your life. You know people that you can influence. You have relationships. There's a study done at the University of Columbia a few years ago and published in the New York Times that said the average person in America knows 600 people. 600 people. In fact, in your lifetime, it is guessed that on average in your lifetime that an American will interact with 80,000 people in the course of your lifetime. However, if we asked you how many of those people do you know personally, that number begins to shrink. Most people believe that they know about 120 to 150 people personally. And if we ask you how many people you trust, the number, number gets very small, 10 to 25. 10 to 25 is, is the average number of people that you trust. So, but uh, regardless of the circle of, of, of sort of acquaintance versus personal knowledge versus trust, you have a circle of influence. And so long before uh, the word influencer was hijacked by social media, and made you think of someone that just posted a lot of things on the gram and tried to get you to buy into pyramid schemes. Influencer was a thing. It just meant that you had influence on people's lives. And you do have influence on people's lives. There are people that God has sovereignly put in your path, in your life, in your relationships, in your places of work, in your places of leisure, in your family, that you have influence with. And what we see here is that... Philip is going to use this influence immediately. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So verse 43 and 44 simply tell us that Jesus invited Philip. They don't tell us that he even said yes, that he even decided to follow. It doesn't tell us anything at all. Because we go to verse 45 and it says this. Philip found Nathanael. The very first thing that Philip does that, that is recorded after Jesus invites him to follow him after he has experienced Jesus in some fashion, we don't even know how long term, maybe a day, maybe an hour, we're not sure, 
is to go find Nathanael. Now, Nathanael is a disciple listed only in the book of John multiple times because Nathanael, in all of the other gospels, is called Bartholomew. Why does he have two names? I don't know. Why did Peter get renamed? His actual name was Simon. I didn't listen. Jesus just had a thing for renaming people. You know, the interesting thing is it's very indicative of when you meet Jesus that your life after Jesus is not like your life before Jesus. I'll say this. I have a really, really good friend. Uh, Some of you guys know Pastor Russ. Pastor Russ has a problem with names. And if he got your name wrong when he met you, you you might as well just rename yourself because he will never get it right again. And my dad's kind of like this. Uh, Russ doesn't have age as an excuse. Uh, My dad called David Jeff. And he still calls him Jeff and he can't get David right. But then the worst part is that he actually met a Jeff and he started calling him David because he got the two mixed up. So Elder Jeff has basically become Elder David. And so when I was talking to him this today about Elder Jeff, he's like, what's that guy's name? Is it David? I was like, dad, you gotta stop. You're not Jesus. Oh, Anyways, squirrels. Philip found Nathaniel. So he goes immediately and he finds somebody he's actually close to, a close friend, and he says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Hey, we found him. It's him. Now, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His description of Jesus is very different. When Philip goes to Nathanael, he realizes, because he knows Nathanael, that Nathanael's going to need to know a little bit of detail, because that's who Nathanael is. Some of us like a little detail, amen? amen. Some of us say, like, you know, well, it sounds good, but give me, some, give me some background, give me some detail. Nathanael studies the scriptures, we're going to find that out about him. He's a studier, he's a reader, he likes to study the scripture, he's eagerly awaiting the Messiah, and so when Philip goes, he's like, well, listen, I'm going to have to give him some context. We found him of whom Moses and the prophets spoke, we found, we found him. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel responds with a question, because that's who Nathaniel is. He responds with a question. And verse 46 in John 1 is probably the single greatest verse describing evangelism in the Bible. If you have it, you're going to underline something here. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Come and see. We found the Savior of the world. Now, there's some things here, right? Nathaniel's a critical thinker. Uh, He studied the scriptures. The Savior was supposed to come from Bethlehem, not Nazareth. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but, but he's not, the context isn't given to Nathaniel, so he doesn't hear that. He doesn't know that. Jesus was raised in Nazareth, uh, Nazareth so it said he came from Nazareth. So Nathaniel's thinking, no, that doesn't match the prophecy. You just said it's of whom Moses and the prophets spoke, and that's, that Savior's supposed to come from Bethlehem, from the line of David, and you just said this guy comes from Nazareth. So, so first of all, he doesn't even, this is the critical thinker, right? It's not even logical, Philip. 
Second of all, Nazareth is small and not really notable. Just kind of a little tiny place in the middle of nowhere. Think uh, Button Willow, Pumpkin Center, Taft. I stayed in a town on the trip that I just took. Griswold, Iowa has 900 people and no stoplights. Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth? Now, what you also probably don't know is that the town that Nathaniel and Philip are from is only a few miles away from Nazareth, and there's kind of a natural rivalry between the two. So if you're Nathaniel, you're like, Nazareth? There's nobody notable that comes from Nazareth. I looked up on Wikipedia if anyone notable came from Taft. Like, who are the most famous people to come from Taft? I just want to, you know, I'm just like, what does Wikipedia say? Do you know the top, the top 12 most famous people? I'm like, I want to see who this is, you know? One of them, I'm not kidding you, one of them is Jordan Belfort. He was the businessman and the convicted felon from the story Wolf of Wall Street. And he's not from Taft. He's only on there because he's in prison in Taft. I was like, that's your most notable? The guy that's locked up in a penitentiary? I'm like, what? Yes. Can anything good come from Nazareth? The other problem with Nazareth is that it had a garrison of Roman soldiers. And, and where soldiers are stationed, generally there's a lot of very um, unrighteous behavior. Amen? And if you're a Jew who has all of these Levitical laws of cleanness and uncleanness, Nazareth by association is seen as very unclean because of its association with both the Gentiles and Roman soldiers. So it's looked down upon, it's not of note, it's a place in the middle of nowhere. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's like saying, can anything good come out of Oildale? I don't know, here we are. And I love, I just, I absolutely love Philip's response. Because to me, Philip's response is the key to all evangelism in almost all aspects. And it's not that we shouldn't study apologetics and we shouldn't study evangelism. We shouldn't study the scriptures and we shouldn't be disciples of, of the word and, and be learners of the word and, 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 and parse through it and, and understand it and chew on it and hold it close to our hearts. We should do all of those things. We should have a desire to continue to grow in the Lord and grow in the knowledge of his holiness and understand him better. All those things are absolutely true. But you'll never have every answer to every question. And if you ever get to the the point where you think you have every answer to every question, you're arrogant, watch out. That's pride. There are mysteries of the gospel I don't think we're ever going to learn. So you're going to have things you don't know. And clearly, Philip, there's some things that Philip can't answer. And it's the very first question. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says this. I don't know. Come and see. Come and see. Don't take my word for it. Come experience it. Come and see. I think about the pattern now that we've witnessed from John the Baptist through uh, Andrew and Peter, now Philip and Nathan. We've witnessed the same pattern over and over again in this set of scripture. Someone hears about Jesus then they see or experience Jesus and they immediately go and tell. John the baptizer, 
hears from God, that God is going to show him who the Messiah is. Then he sees God send the Holy Spirit down to descend on Jesus during his baptism. And then he immediately, after he sees and experiences Jesus, begins to tell people, including his own disciples, about it. Andrew sees, hears about Jesus from John the Baptist, sees Jesus, experiences who he is, and immediately has to go and tell. He tells Simon Peter. Philip, same pattern. Hear, see, tell. Hear, see, tell. Hear, see, tell. It's a natural process because you and I, no matter who you are, no matter what personality you're born with, no matter how kind of different you are maybe than other people, you and I, no matter who you are, were created to be natural worshipers. Every one of us, no matter how stubborn you are, no matter your, your preferences or tastes, no matter ethnicity, cultural background, age, political spectrum, socioeconomic status, was created to be a natural worshiper. You worship something. The question is not if you worship something, it's what do you worship? Because you were created to be a worshiper. And we all know this because like, we, we've run across people who worship something that we find a little bit odd, and so it kind of stands out to us, but we all worship something. Listen, when you really are involved in something that becomes transformational in your life and you begin to see it as a solution to a lot of different problems, when you begin to experience it, it brings you great joy or contentment or satisfaction, you begin to talk about it. I, 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 listen, I do CrossFit. The first rule about CrossFit is that you never stop talking about CrossFit. And, and, and if you're not sure if someone does CrossFit, give them 30 seconds, they'll tell you. But why? No one's paying them to talk about CrossFit. They're talking about CrossFit because it's become transformational for them, because it's begun to impact them, because it brings them joy or satisfaction or it's brought them change or it's become so positive that they think about it and they, their energy and their money and their time and their effort has been poured into it and so they can't help but talk about it. And there are things like that for you. The question is not if there are things. The question is what are they? What do you worship? What do you worship? The problem with evangelism in America is that for some reason, the bulk of the American church has stopped at sea. We, we heard the gospel, and then we experienced the gospel, and then we just stopped like, that's enough. We don't need to talk about it. And that's actually unnatural. That's actually kind of weird. Because if it's truly as transformational as we claim that it is, you shouldn't be able to get us to shut up about it. And one of the reasons that uh, years ago my wife and I decided to really heavily invest in this gym that we were in is because we had had so many kingdom-oriented conversations with people, and we ended up seeing something like 16 or 18 people out of this gym end up coming to our church, and um, people being saved, marriages being restored, doing all these baptisms, and so we just saw God in it, and so we got really invested in it. And then there was a, a time about a few months ago where I realized that like no one in that gym was mad at me for talking about the gospel which means I'm not talking about it enough. Like if like somebody's not ticked off and like you might be going a little overboard, then I'm not talking about it enough because it should feel like overboard. Is there anything is talking about Jesus too much? 
And so like, I was like, man, and then like the very next week, someone through the grapevine, because no one wants to actually come and have a conversation with you, complain, they're like, hey, they feel like you're like talking about Jesus too much. And I was like, yeah, still got it. Why? What, what do I worship? What do you worship? What's important enough to be embarrassed about? What do they have to tell you to shut up about? Because like, I like sports, but if it's the Dodgers, we got a problem. If it's NASCAR, we got a problem. If it's your hobby, we got a problem. Especially if it's way more than Jesus. Like, wait, where's your heart at, Christian? A lot of us got stuck after hear and see and never got to the tell. And I get it. There are actually real concerns and reasons why the tell part seems a little daunting. And one of those is that for a lot of us, we just wonder, like, man, what if they ask me a question that I'm not prepared to answer? Because, like, it happens. It happened in this story. It's the first question, and he can't even answer it. Like, that's not very promising. <laughs> like, he invites him, and he asks him a question he cannot answer as the very first response. But I got good news for you, because for all the things you don't have answers for, there's an answer. Come and see. I don't know. Come and see. Well, what about this? I'm not sure. Come and see. But what if, what if we get labeled? You know what I mean. We're, we're no longer really living in a culture and a society in which following Jesus fervently is looked at positively, particularly in this state. Amen? What if I'm in the what if, what if in my workplace I, I'm I'm now labeled that guy? Or that lady. Like, ooh, what if I get labeled? What if once I start talking about this and begin to declare this and begin to explain what Jesus has done, what if, what if people start watching me all the time, waiting for me to slip up? Psst, they're watching you anyway. They're already watching you. It doesn't suddenly start because you share Jesus. And by the way, you're already a hypocrite. I am too. You know why? Because I'm a sinner and I mess up a lot. It's called grace. Scandalous grace. As part of sharing the gospel to people over the past couple of years, one of the things that I've had a lot of response from, from non-Christians, that I find to be like very curious, is people will say, I, you know, it's not really for me. I'm not good like you. Good like me? You must not know me. Good like me? Brother, all you see is the grace of God on my life. You don't see very much of me at all. Because if you saw me, if you knew me, you'd go, oh, we're just alike. There are lots of reasons not to tell people about Christ. They're not good reasons. And really, 
If you've convinced yourself that there are reasons to stay silent, I would submit to you one of two things. Either you've not yet fully experienced the type of miracles that God does in your life and in other lives, or you've just forgotten. And we're very forgetful people. That's why as you flip through the Bible, he keeps having to tell people, remember, 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 go build monuments, go build altars to me, go build things that you could look at and remember how good I was to you, because you're a forgetful people and you're going to forget. And in your own life, if you've experienced the goodness of God, it's very easy to forget. God can be the greatest God ever, and you can't imagine the abundance and the way that he has provided for you until next week when something happens. God, where are you? So read David. You'll see what I mean. We're forgetful people. But listen to me. This is why remembering the goodness of God is so important in your life is as we begin to sit and think about the miracles that God does in us, on us, and around us, you can't help but begin to share with others who God is and invite them to come and see. And I just, wanna, I, just, I, I just wanna remind you of some miracles. You have miracles you've probably seen if you've experienced the goodness of God in your life. That, that alone was a miracle, that you were dead bones in a grave that God regenerated and made alive by breathing his life into you and putting a heart of flesh in your life is a miracle. Amen. That he would chase down his own enemies and love you is a miracle. But most of us have seen not only those miracles, but more because we watched God. Now, it's easy to forget them. I'm going to read you just two stories about miracles that I read this week that just had me in tears, and I'll tell you even one of my own just as a way of encouragement. On a dark night about 100 years ago, a Scottish missionary couple found themselves surrounded by cannibals intent on taking their lives. On that terror-filled night, the couple fell to their knees and prayed that God would protect them. It was a horrible time. Intermittent with their prayers, the missionaries heard the cries of the savages and imagined them coming through the door to take their lives. As the sun began to rise, to their astonishment, they found that the natives were retreating into the forest. The missionaries were absolutely amazed and filled with joy. Their hearts soared to God. It was a day of rejoicing. The couple bravely continued their work. A year later, the chieftain of that tribe was saved. As the missionary spoke with him, he remembered the horror of that night and asked the chieftain why he and his men had not killed them. The chieftain replied in surprise, who were all the men that were with you? The missionary answered, there were no men with us. It was just my wife and myself. The chieftain began to argue with him, saying, there were hundreds of tall men in shining garments with drawn swords circling about your house so we could not attack you. Years ago, a Southern California pastor's wife was driving on the Santa Ana Freeway one evening, which is always busy, and as she drove on the freeway, somehow the car door opened and her four-year-old child tumbled out on the freeway amidst the high-speed traffic. With her part pounding and with horrible expectations, she pulled her car to a screeching stop and ran frantically back along the freeway. But she did not expect to see what she saw. Her child was sitting up in the fast lane of the freeway amid the glare of headlights, the only injuries, a few scratches. The first words that came out of his mouth were, Mommy, Mommy, I saw Jesus put up his hands and stop the car. About six years ago, our churches were considering uh, merging the two churches together to become one church. And we were in the midst of those conversations, a lot of elders. And I got a call about 10 o'clock at night. It woke me up, actually, that uh, we were going to move forward in the ne uh, next couple days, taking that to our congregations. 
Right after I got that text message, I walked into the bathroom and I peed blood everywhere. I had to go to the ER and was in the ER for two days um, with the inability to get any sort of diagnosis on why my kidneys were bleeding profusely and filling up my bladder with blood. Um, Agonizing pain, at one point ended up finding myself on hands and knees on the hospital room floor talking to God And I remember him very clearly saying, what's coming next is going to be really hard. Am I worth it? And through clenched teeth and a lot of tears and probably some PG-13 language, (laughs) I said, yeah, yeah, I'm in. And it was hard. About three days later, still not understanding what was going on without a diagnosis, I had an elder pray over me. And I felt something release inside of me. And I haven't had the problem since. Don't know why. Neither do the doctors. Never had the problem come back. All around us, God is at work. He's healing. He's raising dead bones to life. He's putting marriages back together. He's reaching men and women who are far from him because he's a God of miracles. And as you begin to experience the goodness of God, you can't stop talking about it until you begin to take it for granted. And I want to remind you that God is so good, there's nothing better in this life to talk about. There's an interesting thing that happens in Nathaniel's story. Jesus sees Nathaniel coming to him. Nathaniel clearly has questions that have not been answered. And as Nathan is walking toward Jesus, Jesus says this, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. It's a very interesting phrase. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. What you don't see here is that the choice of using the word Israelite instead of Hebrew or Jew, which would have been more appropriate, is actually specifically a call back to Genesis 28 to Jacob. The character of Jacob in the Bible is actually renamed Israel. And so what Jesus is doing is actually making a call back to the scriptures that we will find out is probably what Nathan was reading before he came to see Jesus. And he's specifically talking about the story of Jacob because he was known as a schemer, as a deceiver, as a conniver. And so when he says, behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit, he's actually saying something like this, behold, an Israelite, in whom there is no Jacob. What is he saying? He's saying, there's... What he recognizes in Nathaniel is someone who loves the Lord and yet does not have that same sort of conniving, scheming spirit as Jacob. And he's also referencing specifically what Nathaniel was reading before he came to Jesus. He's using very specific language. Verse 48, Nathaniel, the one with questions, says this, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I saw you. Now, there's some things that are happening in this little account where they're going back and forth. The first thing I just want you to recognize is that Jesus is flexing a little bit. 
Jesus literally just read his mail. Jesus just told him what he was reading, where he was reading it, and when he was reading it. Jesus, we don't know the extent to how omniscient Jesus was during his time here on earth. What we do know is he consistently read people's minds. He would speak to thoughts they were thinking that they hadn't even said out loud. We know that Jesus consistently foretold not only his own death, but his own resurrection. He was always telling the future around his uh, disciples, which is why one of the reasons they were always confused of what he was talking about. In this case, he reads Nathaniel's mail as he walks up to him. But what I want you to see here is or what you may not see the context of is when he says, uh, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. There was a, a tradition in this culture that you would take the Torah, you take the scriptures, and it was hot indoors. So you'd go outside and you'd sit in the shade of a tree and you'd read the scriptures. This was a very cultural norm. In fact, it was so culturally norm um, that they, men and women that owned houses started planting trees in their front yards and they would typically plant a fig tree because it would come in with really big leaves and it'd be really thick shade. And so it was really common to sit under a fig tree and read the scripture. Except he saw Nathan doing this specifically, sitting under a fig tree, reading the scripture. He says something to Nathan that I want you to hear personally. He says, I saw you. I saw you. I want you to hear this. Jesus sees you. You may not feel like people are paying attention you may not feel like anyone really knows or understands what's going on in your life right now, but Jesus does. He sees you. He knows you. He knew you before he knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows every hair on your head. He knows you. He knew you before you would even acknowledge him. He knew you when you were his enemy. He knows when you're struggling, when you're hurt, when you're broken, when you're ashamed. He knows me. The scandal of grace is that he knows me and chose me anyways. That's what's so beautiful about what Jesus did is we were his enemies. And he knew us and he loved us and he died for us anyways. He describes Nathaniel as the one who has no deceit. He would not describe me that way. He would describe me as a schemer and a conniver because he knows me and he chose me anyway. Maybe you can relate to that. He sees you and he loves you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. He believes he believes. He's experienced Jesus, and he believes. There's a great scene in uh, episode two of the second season of The Chosen where this plays out, and they act this out. Um, they do it a little bit differently, but, but Nathaniel comes up to Jesus, and Jesus says these words to him, and you, they, they show Nathaniel's face, and it changes. He goes, like at the moment of belief, and they add something that's not in the text. They add, Jesus says this, there it is. He sees the belief. He knows that he's believed in him. There it is. That moment when Jesus has awoken a dead soul. And Jesus says this to him in verse 50. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? Like, that's all it took. You will see greater things than these. 
And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Okay, let's be honest. That's a super weird follow-up. I got the rest of it until we started talking about angels going up and down. That's weird. Well, what happened back in Genesis 28 with Jacob? Do you remember the story? Jacob's doing his conniving and he's, he's doing his scheming and then he gets in trouble and he runs out into the wilderness and he ends up far away from everyone and he's so exhausted he falls asleep on a rock. You have to be really tired to fall asleep on a rock or on a couch sitting up. Either way, he falls asleep and he has a dream. God gives him this dream and the dream is what? There's a ladder that goes up to heaven. It's a long ladder, not OSHA approved. And there are angels ascending and descending along the ladder. And it is God telling Jacob, you're not alone. You feel alone. You feel isolated. You feel lost. You're running from your own sin, but you're not alone because I'm here. Why would Jesus say this to him? Well, what does he say? He says, you will see the angels ascending and descending on the son of man. What is Jesus saying? I'm the ladder. Hey, that story you're reading about, I'm the ladder. Heaven, it is possible. You'll be there through me because I'm the ladder. If you've never heard this before, I want you to hear this. There is a God. He created everything you've ever seen. You and I were his enemy and we were far from him. And yes, Proverbially, we were running in the wilderness because of our sin. But Jesus is the ladder. He came and lived the life that you could never live, and he died the death you were supposed to die, and he rose again on the third day to take away all of our sin. And he's the ladder. When you put your faith in him by confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart that he is the Son of God, that he's your Lord of Lords, you'll be saved. He's the ladder. I just want to sum up this and I want to prepare us a little bit for Easter and I want to talk about what your takeaways are. So somewhere, hopefully in a pew around you or in front of you, there's a little index card. You find one of those. If you don't have one, if you can't find one in the pew in front of you or the pew behind you, uh, raise your hand. We have extras. We'll run them around. Find an, find an index card. This is a 100% participatory exercise so everyone gets to participate. If not, I'll come chase you down and make you take a road trip with me. I sing terribly. Find your index card. We'll talk about what we're going to do. We've seen a pattern now for three weeks in a row in this scripture. We hear about Jesus. We hear about the gospel. If you know Jesus today, it's because someone told you. They told you because you personally knew them. They told you because you're listening to a radio. You're listening to a sermon. You're, you're reading something that was written. But somewhere, somehow, God got your attention. You heard about the gospel. You heard about this guy, Jesus. And then, if you know Jesus, it's because you then saw him. You experienced the goodness of God because he awakened your dead soul and drew you to him. And now, the third part is, it is our privilege and our obligation to tell others. It is the Great Commission. It is the Great Commission to tell others. Imagine being so selfish that we might keep this joy to ourselves. 
No, that's never the way it was meant to be. You have a circle of influence. There are people that God has put in your life and in your path and in your circles, and you are the only person potentially in their life that they will actually hear about the gospel from. You are, just like Colossians would tell us, Christ in you is the hope of glory. You are their hope because God has put his spirit in you and put them in your path so that you can invite them to come and see. And so what I would like you to do right now is like take that index card and the first people, the first names that come to mind of people that are far from the Lord, I just want you to write those down. I don't want you to overthink this. Don't get super critical here. Just people that are far from the Lord that God has put on your heart and in your path and in your life. I just want you to write their names down. You put them on the index card. Next week is the single greatest opportunity for an unchurched person in America to go to church. Statistically, you got a better chance of shooting your shot and getting them to say yes on Easter. We can use some of that cultural Christianity to our advantage. They may be willing to show up if you invite them. So we're going to take those names that you put down and here's what you're going to do. You're committing, if you write those names down, to pray for those individuals, to pray fervently for those individuals, to pray with some angst. The idea, and this is such an American idea, the, the idea that we could be living alongside people that don't know Jesus and it not break us, that's terrifying to me. I want to live in a state of angst over those that don't know Jesus. I want to wear myself out praying for those that don't know Jesus, that they might get a glimpse of him. Just got to pray for them. Secondly, you got to invest in their lives. Whatever opportunity you have to invest in their lives, you can invest in them. You can invest in people because Jesus did. You're going to find ways to help. You're going to find ways to encourage. You're going to find ways to just invest in their lives. And then you're going to invite them. You're going to invite them to church. You're going to invite them to your small group. You're going to invite them into your home. You're going to invite them out for coffee. You're going to invite them to come and see, to taste that the Lord is good. I'm going to pray over us today. I'm going to pray over you today. And what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to take your card and I'd like you to come up to the altar. And I would like you to pray for those individuals that God would open their heart that God would give you opportunities to speak truth into their life, that God would make your spirit sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit so as the Holy Spirit begins to prompt you to do things that you probably would not do otherwise, you will follow in obedience to where he leads. I'm going to pray over us. We're going to sing a song, and you're going to come, and you're going to pray for those that God's put on your heart. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your son. We thank you, God, that he came to earth to walk and live as a man, that he was willing to die on a cross for our sin. God, that he resurrected and defeated death. And God, that we have the opportunity to be sons and daughters of the king because you loved us. You shouldn't have, but you did. I thank you for the individuals that are listening today, God, that you're the hearts you're working on both in this room and online, God, as you continue to encourage them, lead them, prompt them, convict them, God. And I pray, God, for the impact that we're going to have in our communities and our circles of influence, Lord, because we're obedient to your spirit. 
Because even without all the answers and even sometimes feeling like we're not equipped, we're willing to step out in faith and invite people to come and see your goodness. God, I thank you for the work you're going to do, generations that you're going to change, relationships you're going to restore, God. Miracles we'll see. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You move as the Lord leads you as we pray for those that are on our heart.